Do you believe your sensitivity is your biggest weakness? That's what a lot of highly sensitive persons think and experience. I'm going to show you that your sensitivity is actually your greatest strength. We will discuss all kinds of topics related to being a highly sensitive person, have inspiring guests and above all, give you all kinds of information and tools so you can learn to use it as a strength. My name is Annette Zwart, life coach for highly sensitive persons. Welcome to Sensitive and Strong. So welcome everyone and thanks again for listening. And so today I have a very special guest, <laughs> Dr. Elaine Aaron. And I'm so honored today that she's here with me. Um, Dr. Elaine Aaron has done so much for HSPs and the whole community. And she's the one who has named the trait as one of the first and she has done so much research and basically dedicated her life to get more information into the world about being a highly sensitive person. And she has written several great books about high sensitivity. And if you haven't read them, I would say it's definitely a must to get an understanding about the trait. And another book she also has written is The Undervalued Self, which is about ranking and linking, which is also an awesome book. And with writing all those books, she started an awareness process for many of us, so many of us, and she took us on the path to knowing about our traits, basically. Um, and if you think about the fact that 15 to 30% of the population, and that's almost 7.9 billion people already, and so that means that almost two billion people around that number can benefit and learn from her research and findings. So thank you, Elaine, for taking the time to be here with me. Oh, it's such a joy to, to, to be with you, Annette, and to be with all the HSPs that will listen or, or friends and family members of highly sensitive people or parents. Uh, we welcome them all. Yes, yes, indeed, that's great. So many people, right, who can benefit from Right, if you think about all the people who are affected by highly sensitive people, we get everybody in the world. <laughs> yes, exactly, true. We, we have such a big uh, impact. We can have such a big impact also on the world with our uh, sensitive trait. So I, I remember when I first read your book, when, I had, when it had just come out in the Netherlands, that was, I think, in 1997, and I recognized so much of myself in that. And I, I saw it in the, in the bookstores, like it was laying there for me, like many other people I think you've heard from. And there were so many things that I recognized, but also some things that, I, that didn't feel so familiar. But I later found out that it's because I'm also a high sensation seeking person. So that's sometimes a little bit confusing, like because some things you can't place in right away. But after time, I realized, well, okay, that's because of I'm, that I'm also high sensation seeking, uh, which will also be a topic of one of my future episodes. So um, that's good. Um, and at the time, I think I was around 20. Um, I had so many other things on my mind as well. And uh, so I didn't really do so much with the information. And it wasn't actually until 2010, um, and at that time I lived in the U.S., uh, in Virginia, and then I found Jacqueline Strickland and the HSP Gathering Retreats, uh, which she organizes, and you have also had a big hand in that. And when I went to one on, in North Carolina, um, and you were attending that, um, I think it was uh, through the phone, or maybe it was a teleconference. It was when those things came a little bit more popular that, that it was possible even with the techniques then. And so I've heard you speak then, and you probably, I, I don't think I spoke up, so you, you wouldn't have known I was there, I think. <laughs> but that retreat was really amazing to me. And I started to really discover what being a highly sensitive person then really meant for me personally as well. And so after that, I, I started to do more retreats with, with other HSPs and other gatherings from, from Jacqueline. And I also finished the coach training. And so a couple of things that really started uh, coming together for me. And so over the years, I think we have met a couple of times uh, yes. through the years. 
And so in 2018, you invited me to your training in San Francisco, of which the, the group of the international consultants of high sensitivity that sort of arose from that and it grew. And so you have witnessed my journey as an HSP, because when I look back, I was so, uh, so unsure of myself and not very confident. And but I uh, remember, I remember riding in the car with you somewhere. Do you remember that? Yes, yeah. that was in Sweden, I think. Yes, and we were going to the train station. I don't remember where we were going, but I was just so impressed with you. I, I don't, that's that's yeah. why I sort of plucked you in my mind and plunked you in that group. <laughs> I just, I really liked you, you know. I'm never sure about coaches, you know, because they, they just can have all kinds of training and it's all about personality. And I, I just didn't, bring anybody in that group that I didn't know pretty well, but I felt like I knew you pretty well. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, we did over the years met a couple of times in Sweden with the gathering when I brought you, I think, to the airport and then also in yes. Germany where I picked you up and, and art as well. And then yes. also driving you back, which is, oh, I always felt that like kind of special having some time with you. So <laughs> well, I, really I did nice. too. <laughs> Yeah, but I think over the years, I've, I've really grown from being a very unsure and, and um, not very confident HSP to growing into the confident coach that I am today. And I was thinking about it when I was preparing for the interview. It's like I wouldn't have been where I am today if it wasn't for you, because I had so much information from you and so much insights that gave me about the trade and um, how to thrive and stuff like that. So that's something I'm really very grateful for. Well, and it, I think it brings up an important point for around the area of confidence is that when you know something that's really important and you know the people that you're with need to know it, you kind of fade out of the picture. And I think sensitive people so often have so much to offer. And if they just, just get a chance to offer it and, and find other people are responsive, that gives them a lot, of, a lot of confidence. Another thing that I have done in the past, I don't do it so often now, is when I start speaking to a group, I tell them that because I'm highly sensitive, I will be a little anxious at first. And uh, not, not, I don't use the word anxious, I'll be, I'll say I'm overstimulated because this is a new situation for me and all of your faces are new to me. So don't worry, I'll, I'll get in stride. <laughs> and it's good role modeling for other sensitive people that, yeah, you can be awkward at first, but don't panic. I remember once giving a talk, it was on this uh, undervalued self and that was new for me. I didn't know how people were gonna take the information. I stumbled through it. And at the break, I felt I had been horrible. And I said something, the group apologized and they all thought it was fabulous. <laughs> so, so we sensitive people, we're our own best critics and that can be useful at times, but it also, it's so good to get feedback. Yeah, true. And I, I also always find that saying out loud that you're maybe a little bit nervous or that you're stressed about the situation or overwhelmed, that it also takes away the tension about it and you can relax then in the moment, like, okay, yeah, I've told them. So if it's something that shows up, it will be fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so too. And again, I think it's good, good role modeling for people to be, you know, we're, we're in now into being authentic. And yeah. I think it's a, it's a great way to, to be yourself. And I think it makes people feel more comfortable. One of the things that I sometimes will say when I, when I stand up in front of a bunch of people, sometimes I'll say, you know, you're looking up at me right now because I'm the speaker. But I'll bet you that every one of you could come up here and tell me something that I don't know. I just happen to be in this role. And, and you know, I think that's another way of you know, that linking thing, the ranking is just built into being a coach or a therapist or a speaker. But if we can disarm it a little bit, it's it feels good. Yeah, yeah, true. I think it's a skill that we have to learn and be more comfortable with so we can be more empowered also. Yeah. Yes, I, I heard a woman, I was listening to a podcast by a very interesting person, but she was talking about discovering her sensitivity and, and seeing it as a strength. So she, she called it sensitive strong. 
And I thought afterwards, maybe we should have named it strongly sensitive. Yeah. Oh, that's a great twist. <laughs> nice, strongly sensitive. I mean, people say strongly when they mean highly in yeah. English, you know, anyway. So it wouldn't be a big change, but it has a double meaning. True, true, totally. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting that you say that the whole the confidence part, um, because one thing that I think is is coming up often with HSPs is because they feel different than others, and that uh, often it shows up in their confidence as well. And then it makes you think when you feel different, you often doubt your own judgment. So that's where your confidence is shrinking, sort right. of. And one of the interesting things, um, I did a course lately at the American Institute for Confidence. They actually <laughs> have an institute for that. Oh, great. <laughs> and, and so um, it's, it's one of the things that's really great about that is that it's all science-based. It's like research, like how, what is confidence and how does it look and how do you get it and stuff like that. And so... It's, they, they researched and they learned that confidence is mostly a set of behavior instead of an intrinsic feeling, which is like fascinating if you think about it. And so the question is not like, do you have it or you don't have it, but it's like a, a behavior set of things that you can sort of adapt and do and then make that more uh, into a, a pattern, like a behavior. And so then it sort of grows on you. And so um, one of the things they have researched that on average, most people don't have much confidence until they are 60 years old. It's like, wow, <laughs> that is so sad. I mean, in a way, that's so if, if you have to wait until 60, until you're confident, I mean, it can take a long time then. And so one of the things that a lot of a lot of wisdom is lost there because everyone has experiences and often they're useful to other people. But if you won't speak up about them and, and I just to say about minorities, you've heard me talk about how it's impossible for human beings to see two groups as equal, almost impossible. So they either see them as inferior or superior. And of course, we don't really want to be seen as superior. So I think one of our tasks, just like this linking thing, is to try to keep in mind that I want to stand up for and, and, and represent equality of groups, equality of groups. And that means I cannot see myself as one down because that's you know, unequal. I shouldn't see myself as one better, but that, but that I might have to teach other people about equality because they sensitivity in most cultures just that word unfortunately it, the word actually has has a positive and a negative meaning it's very rare for a word to be like that because usually for the same kind of behaviors we have we have persistent or stubborn you know one's positive one's neighbor in fact confident you can say arrogant or snooty or something like that are confident because we we have different words for things and sensitive it, it just depends on where you are as to whether you hear it as positive or negative which is good because we do have that better opportunity to to wake people up to the positive yeah yeah absolutely yeah also one of the things that that's uh, um, that I learned there as well is that confidence is also I mean most people see confidence as I have it and if you if, if you make me feel unsure or something then it's like you you uh, that you're stealing it from someone else almost and the mm -hmm. thing is almost the opposite actually that confidence is when you share it with others and when you build someone else up it grows actually and so then you have to gather more confidence. It's like almost the, 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 the if, if it's not one and one is two, but one and one is three almost. <laughs> right. Well, that I think it goes back to whether your attitude is ranking or linking, because with ranking, um, I'm showing confidence. And that means I'm going to have more power and influence than you. If that's your attitude about confidence, or that's the way you read other people's confidence, um, which if we're obsessed with ranking, we often rank ourselves too low. But if you can take confidence as a linking phenomenon that we 
this is a good that we can share. Um, I think that's a wonderful idea and a wonderful way to think about it. Yeah, well, it's it's. I think it's also fascinating that it's really backed up by science, by by research. So that's also something that appeals to me as well. And well, listen, let me tell you something. A, a trick for everybody: mm -hmm. find Google Scholar. It's buried in your options, you know, and put in anything that you're interested in, even if it's a physical problem, and Google it because you'll find research. And some of it is quite readable, especially social psychological research, like what you're talking about. Uh, and, and it just gets you past all the garbage. Yeah. <laughs> some of it is still garbage, but not very much. Yeah. No, science in psychology is fantastic because you get much closer to studies where they've actually found something rather than opinions. And people are out there teaching about confidence all over the place. But I'm so glad that you that you had that experience and, and got that information. There's a lot about power that's very interesting too that you may have run into there. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm still learning more about it and and going deeper with the material from that from that training, but I'm also I'm, I want to go and I want to adapt it to uh, especially for HSPs and then combining the confidence part with the HSPs and more yes. adapting yes. it to them personally and then make a training of that. So I think that will be awesome. <laughs> it will be awesome, and I think. Um, having it, some of it science-based along with your own experience will just give people so much more confidence in what you confidence in what you're saying. I, I wonder, I guess empowering is a good word, but it does have that word power in it. Power is everywhere. Like I, I say about ranking is ranking is everywhere. So we can't eliminate it. It's necessary in some situations. It's natural to us to compare ourselves to others. Um, and power really means influence. So you can have a good influence. If people look up to you because of your wisdom, you're, you're having, you've got power, you've got influence for, for, a good, for a good cause and for a good purpose. In fact, I talk about um, power in the service of love. That is like, that's what a teacher's doing. If you're trying to bring someone up to your level of have, being just as confident as you've become a net, then that's, that's a really good use of power. And, but you might make that point to people. Sometimes people are afraid of the word power, like, well, I'm going to be empowered. Is that going to make me creepy or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pushing people around. <laughs> yeah, it almost feels like, like, it's a, like it's a bad thing, right? And in, in that way. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I think people associate it with movements and empower, uh, you know, power to the people and, you know, yeah. which is, which is good, but then some some people don't like that, you know. Yeah, yeah, true, true, yeah. So anyway, if, if it's got you... a lot of it's got a lot of power. The term empowerment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's true indeed. And then also the term empowerment is also like you hear that a lot in in the HSP community, and it's it's yeah. often used very uh, very quickly. Um, but then I was thinking also like if you if you define it more specifically, like what is empowerment for HSPs, it comes down to confidence, I think, and also awareness of how and what you are and how to yes. use that in a positive way, I think. Yes, and, and I think sometimes when, when people talk about the HSP movement or empowering us, I think sometimes there's a connotation that we have to change society in some way. Like we ought to, we ought to I've heard people say we ought to pass laws that give us this, that, and the other thing. We have to speak up for what we want. But I feel that when we are good at what we do and are, are positive, uh, and we can mention our sensitivity in the context of being appreciated, that's how we empower ourselves. I, I once said when people are self-employed, um, often you're told if you're starting a business, you should have a lot of money to invest. Don't, don't, don't lack. I say HSPs often do better by word of mouth. You yeah. know, the, the risk of money is scary. But if you if you take your time and do a good job with each client or each case or each situation, the word gets out. So it's it's a I think it's the HSPs way of, of doing business and also I think of changing the world. We don't have to follow up the models of changing the world that other people have had. Yeah. Plus, 
you know, when you have a visible difference, it's quite, it's quite different than an invisible difference. I read a study on that once. I thought it was so interesting that people who are rich or have a high IQ, and we could think of ourselves as this that way, that they, they, it's a whole different experience than having something visible like your skin color or your gender or something like that. We don't get labeled immediately. We can take our time and, and be aware that we could get labeled depending on how we reveal ourselves. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's, it's, it, you, it, there's always a choice in how much you show of yourself and what you show as well. What? Yes. <laughs> what what parts of yourself, indeed. Exactly. No, yeah. I think that's very true. Um, and, and, you know, I've, I've talked about if you've had a painful childhood, there may be a tendency to reenact and show your, your feeling like a victim or showing that you feel low rank or sh showing these things. And it's interesting what you say, just stopping showing it really helps in getting rid of it because we we play the roles physically there, there's a research on aging where when you put old older people in an, in a room with younger people they tend to hunch over more and shuffle their feet <laughs> and when they're in a room with other people their own age especially if you put things on the wall like posters from when they were young they, they act spry and, and it was about the social construction of aging, which we think is so, so unable to change. And yet, and yet it does change by what people expect. And people, yeah. old people who act old, even when they aren't old biologically, you know. Exactly, yeah, yeah, totally. I think it's also, I mean, I'm, I'm 49 at this moment, but I'm thinking also like in, you come to a point and then if you have a backache or, or some, um, some other aches and then you start thinking, well, I'm not young anymore. So in a way you're, you're confirming- Absolutely, my husband, process. my husband hates that. And I actually have, a, I see this osteopath who doesn't believe in aging. Mm, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, he must at some level, but he he just says, let's fix it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a fascinating concept, I think, because I, I also think that aging is not so much. I mean, of course, if you're 100, you won't be. Well, it's it's even that. I mean, there are people who are 100 years old and they are so flexible right. and they can do like gymnastic yeah. routines and everything. So what is age then if you look at it from that perspective, right? It's all a mindset and, and doing. Yes. And it's visible. So unfortunately, yeah. um, aging has, although, the, and then you start, if you're doing well at 80, all of a sudden people start congratulating you and you're thinking... <laughs> Why? <laughs> what did I do exactly? I could yeah. I can swim across the pool. Is that something to be to be? <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway. I'm interested in in your thoughts on that as well because that was also one of my questions that I had. Like a lot of HSPs, they say when they uh, they age and they grow older that their sensitivity becomes more. Uh, more present and that it becomes more intense. Is there is there research or something to back that up? Or there's no research, but I mean it should be done. It's just there's so much research that ought to be done. But I think that would be interesting whether that's in one's perception, one's changing of how one directs one's attention. Because if you're if you're just simply observing more, you may notice your sensitivity more. Uh, if you're observing and then processing more, you know all of that could could heighten those those basic DOES qualities. And the person who said this, uh, what being strongly sensitive, said that she hadn't noticed other things like getting tired before. And you have to be careful when you begin to notice those things that you don't identify with them. But it could be that as you get older, you notice everything more. And, and because it could be a kind of wisdom too, just, oh, I actually can sense that or that is there. And, I, and slowing down and observing, which is what we say this trait is about, that yeah. could increase with age. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
yeah that's that's also one thing that i'm always fascinated by is that uh so much of our perception of the world is so much influenced by our thoughts and there's this this quote <clears throat> i i love this and it uh, it says like what's your thoughts they become your words and what's your words they become your actions when what's your actions they become your habits what's your habits because they become your character and then what's your character because it becomes your life so in other words, what we think we become almost like like you're almost creating your own world. And in a way, that's also with with the aging process, maybe that the more things you focus on, the more you become aware of things, the more you influence things on how they are going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes, so I, in, I, I when I was little, I, I read a book that I really liked. I um, not sure the title, which one it was. But it was about this little boy who, you know, growing up with a nice dad, and he did something he wasn't supposed to do. I think he, I think I was crazy about horses. I think he took some pony out for a ride that he wasn't supposed to take or something. His father found out, and his father said that your personality, your character is like a house. It's built of one brick at a time. And if some of the bricks are crooked, it doesn't seem to matter at first, but when the house is done, it makes a big difference. <laughs> and when I grew up in my family, being honest was not, not uh, outside the family was not very important. Like if, if somebody made a mistake counting change, because in those days you kind of change out of a cash register a lot, and you did it yourself and you were good at it or not so good at it. If somebody made a mistake in our favor, we wouldn't say anything in the store. We'd go out and be, oh, so happy. <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as I met my husband, everything changed. She said, I want to be able to go to sleep at night feeling good about everything I've done. And uh, then I, I, you know, I just realized how smart that was. We didn't have a lot of money, but money is nothing compared to feeling good about your character. So one of the things that was always hard for me was if I bumped the car, you know, dented their fender. You're supposed to leave a note, you know. <laughs> oh my golly, I have to leave a note. <laughs> well, I always do now. And I've had yeah. some very good luck with that. I've had people so grateful. One guy said, Well, you know what? Somebody hit rear-ended me the next day. So your dent was nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so th there's a lot of good that can come out of. I don't know how we got onto this topic, but yes, out of watching what we think and what and what we say, very important. Yes, yeah. all of it has an influence. Mm, yeah. Well, that's one of the fascinating things about it, I think, is that that your difference in perspective and your thoughts about it uh, make the difference. Yet the facts around you, uh, your your physical surroundings, they don't change at all. It's only your how you perceive things and how you judge things like uh, that's that's more uh, that will influence how you think about it so I'm, I'm it's fascinating I think that we, we yeah, it's important for a coach isn't it because yeah. this is something that you can do right away for people is work backwards okay let's change your, your personality by changing your character and we can do that by changing the way you behave and that and that's not so hard you know we have to break some habits yeah and, and, and then you get back therapy tends to start at the at the back and work forward more and and sometimes you never see the results in behavior so uh, i mean i never thought of coaching quite in that way exactly yeah. what it is um i've well, been I, I mentioned in in the group i just i can say it, i'm i'm interested right now in uh, people who are in higher states of consciousness, like awakened or whatever like that. And mm -hmm. that begins simply in, you know, it can begin just with meditating yeah. because getting down there and getting very quiet and then your thoughts are better. They're more refined, they're, they're on a broader basis. And then that changes, you know, you, you're not so irritable. Or yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Things. So um, 
Yeah, that's a, and I think sensitive people are really capable of going deep and therefore expressing, expressing. You know, I, I don't like to make us again in, into super people, but I think we're really capable of that. Yeah, and it's yeah. important to notice what we are capable of because that's part of the confidence building. Absolutely, absolutely, totally true. And I think it's also fascinating that often. Um, Often we have more of a fixed mindset about things. And the, the, the difference in there is like, we often think it's logical for things to evolve, um, that you can learn things. For instance, if, if you say, I can't play the piano, uh, then you can move forward to saying, I'm learning to play the piano. And then at some point it's like, I've learned to play the piano. And then at some point that becomes I can play the piano and I'm good at it, maybe even. <laughs> yes. But when, when it comes to being confident or being able to deal with situations or like giving presentations, we tend to have a much more fixed mindset. Like I'm not good at presentations. I mean, when I started with my coach training, there was suddenly an option. We had to do uh, like a, a group presentation and we could choose whether it be a paper or uh, a teleconference or in the group presentation. And I was terrified of, of presentations. Like I'm going to do a, a paper on it. That will be fine. That will be sent out to all the other coaches in training. So that felt, felt really comfortable to me. And then at some point there was an option that at the last moment, something came free and uh, we had to coach each other as peers. And so my peer coach said to me, like, why don't you go do this, this presentation in the class? And I was like, I'm terrified of presentation. I couldn't do that because I would freeze. I would make a total mess of it or, or whatever. And he helped me work through those things. And I did give a presentation. It was on high sensitivity, of, by the way. <laughs> And so it's like you have this fixed mindset often of, of these more important things. Mm -hmm. Well, with these things, you can also learn and try new things. And so that's, that's so fascinating. I think that we often get stuck in, I can't do this because it's too difficult mm -hmm. for me. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, my husband and I write a statistics book and I, I get charged with, writing these little boxes. I wrote one on math anxiety and I researched it a little bit. And one of the things I learned was in the United States, uh, I don't know if this would be true in Europe, but it might be. There's this idea that you're either good or bad at math. And if you're bad at math, you're yeah. bad at math, you know? Yeah. In Asia, people believe you can learn math. Mm. That if you work long enough and hard enough on a problem, you will get it. Uh, and if you can't, you get help because you're going to learn it. It's like learning to play the piano. Yeah. And pretty good at learning musical instruments too. And it's that attitude. I think it's that you, it might be hard, hard work could be harder work for you than someone else, but it's mm -hmm. not impossible. And, exactly. and getting that, that attitude of a learning attitude rather than a innately impossible attitude and people get ideas about sensitivity that, well, I couldn't possibly do that. In fact, we can do just about anything. A lot of it is familiarity. You know, I was surprised meeting all these HSPs living in New York City. <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, how can you do that? Well, they're used to it. It's familiar. I joked, I said, if I took you out in the middle of the Nevada desert on a vision quest, <laughs> you would collapse because it wouldn't be what you're used to. The secret often is getting people familiar, but they don't want to go through those steps of getting familiar where they stumble, where they make mistakes. It's yeah. being willing to make mistakes, it's hard. And I don't know why, but sensitive, I never talked much about this, but I think a lot of sensitive children are just crushed by making a mistake. Yes. And then they can't, they can't move forward in life. Sometimes they get over it when they're older, when they see that and parents can really help them to see you're going to make mistakes, but they want so much to be perfect. They know what perfect sounds like. I heard someone say, if you want a child to learn a musical instrument, get them the best instrument, not a crummy instrument, because they'll hear what it should sound like when they do it right. And they'll love the sound. Wow, they won't yeah. like the sound when they do it right. And it's a bad <laughs> instrument. Isn't that an interesting idea? Yeah, totally. Yeah. 
and maybe that's the attitude we have to have towards our own instrument, you know, bring it into the situation as, as perfect as possible. And then practice. you'll still make mistakes, but practice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So that makes me think of a quote that I also learned in my coach training, which is so fascinating. I think it says, stress only exists when your thoughts are not corresponding with the reality. And then suffering arises when you believe things should be different than what they are. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with the second one. I have to think about the first one, but the second one, I think Buddha made the statement that we shoot ourselves with two arrows. The first is the arrow that hurts, so we're in pain. And the second arrow we shoot ourselves, which is suffering about it. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. I should have how did I get this? How did this happen to me? Who did this to me? And, and this is going to kill me or all these thoughts that make it so much worse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think if, if you look at the first part also, that stress only exists when your thoughts are not corresponding with reality. I mean, we often, especially as HSPs with all uh, things that are not fair in the world, we think often like it should be different. It should be like that, or this should be uh, different. But if you're coming from a place of, of awareness and accepting a situation like this is how it is, this is not how I like it to be, I want it to be different, and then look uh, like how, what could I do to make a difference? What could I do to change something in, in, right. in a small thing in your own life, but it could also be the bigger things. Well, yeah, I, 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 I get that in terms of mentally, because... Um, everything is based on our consciousness, how we experience things. And uh, the only thing is that if you're physically stressed, like if you've been overwhelmed, you know, like you're overstimulated, yeah. I don't know whether we can change that without taking a break, you know? Um, yeah, that's true, yeah. We, we can, to some extent, we can certainly put off taking a break and we can even say, I know I'm overstimulated and I, I can get through this, I've done it in the past. Now that would be the only, Question, but I, I agree that um, stress is, is definitely has that so much stress. I mean, I think you're right because I joke that if somebody's, if you're trying to sleep and someone in, uh, in um, across the wall is banging stuff around in the kitchen, if it's somebody you don't know or someone you told not to do that, you know, you get so stressed. But if they're cooking dinner for you or putting away the dishes, oh, what yeah. I say? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, it's how you perceive it. Right. The, the dripping faucet is a nuisance. The dripping rain on the on the, you know, outside sounds wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I often found that uh, when I, with some clients, I remember one specifically who also had very much difficulty with, with too much sound in her apartment from the, the surrounding apartments. Right. And I, I also, that's what I, one of the things that I taught myself as well is just to uh, accept the noise as it's there. And because if you, if you start, and that's where also the, the thinking part comes in, like if you think like, there's too much noise, I can't sleep now, then you will create all these emotions about it. And then the actions that you get from that is that you will be totally overwhelmed and frizzled. Right. And lots, like, of, oh. lots of cortisol running around in your body. Yes. Yeah. That's and a, and when, yeah, you, that, when you, yeah, go ahead. Um, my meditation teacher said the ocean can't escape its waves. So you just have to you know, it's just yeah. there. And it, noise used to bother me when I meditate and it doesn't bother me anymore. Yeah. Um, and another thing that I have found helps for noise in my condominium is knowing the people, mm. knowing my neighbors, because yeah. then it is like, oh, you know, George and Mary are have their grandchildren over right now. So that's why it's noisy. You know, I, I, I love those kids. They're great kids. You know? Yeah. They're running around over my head. <laughs> <laughs> it makes a lot of difference, right? Because that's what I, that's the other side also. I think if you think like, oh, there's so much noise around me and it's just there, 
and it's just noise, but then it becomes easier to just accept right. it and just let it sort of wave through you. Right. It's habituation too. I mean, the other thing I've tried when, when something was bothering me is I've tried like meditating and I don't usually have a ticking clock, but if I'm somebody's house and the clock is ticking, I'll tell myself, okay, just spend your, your 20 minutes listening to the ticking clock. Go ahead, try it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't. After a little while, your mind has gone elsewhere. It's just, and then you don't hear it anymore. <laughs> don't hear it anymore. We habituate yeah. and we have to trust habituation because that's also with unfamiliarity is it's we get used to anything if we do it a few times. Yeah. And, and so, and that's, that is a way that, stress can be managed very well is through familiarity because the, the stress of being overstimulated is, is what bothers people a lot. The other place where people get a lot of stress is social. You know, the way they think people feel about them or things that people say without being able to put it in any kind of context, that stuff can really wear you out and stress you. Yeah. Probably most social, most stress most trauma is social and that requires lots of lots of work sometimes to work yes that and too. dedication indeed to to really want to make a difference in in your thinking habits mm -hmm. that's one one of the things i often also work with clients on and it's like the the, the taming the monkey brain like <laughs> right with with how you judge things and how you perceive things like is are they thinking about me are they talking about me or they see me doing this it's must i must be doing it wrong or stuff like that, that you're always feeling judged indeed. But that's, I think that's also something that you can sort of retrain your brain on. Yes, and, and I'll tell you a little secret about the monkey mind. This is also from my meditation teacher. Give the monkey a banana. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so give, give your mind something different to think about, like how good, how, how many people like me or how good I was the last time I gave a presentation or how when I gave a presentation, there's always one or two people who didn't like it, but remember that when you checked, you found that most people did. These, um, I think it, that's, I'm sure that's what you do. It's sort of what you're training is positive thinking. What you're training the monkey is to, it's, to go find the banana because it's there. <laughs> and once you find it, sit down and enjoy it and stop running around. Yeah. Yeah, I think we often, we just accept that our brains, it's like the fixed mindset again, we accept that our mind is always wandering off and always thinking about what could happen and what people think of us and how we come across and all those things. But instead, if you look at your thoughts, like, are they real? Is there truth in it? Or is it factual? And just sort of pull your mind back sometimes I say like your mind is just like a child you need to take by the hand and just know it's it will be fine don't worry right. about it don't go there let's right. just look at the facts and go from right. there and I like to say to get the big picture again it's like is this always true um yeah uh, and how much does this matter <laughs> yeah, it's also big thing, because yeah. when we get to thinking about stuff we're usually getting anxious physiologically and 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 it our mind narrows down when our mind relaxes it expands and that's why uh, again like just closing your eyes for a few moments uh, like when you've lost something and you're running around frantically and you close your eyes and think about where you last had it yeah all of a sudden you know where it is it's it's consciousness is such a fantastic tool absolutely yeah, yeah, totally true. <clears throat> yeah. So um, it's such a fascinating topic, I think, with thoughts and confidence and, and how that all works with HSPs. Um, one, one other thing that I'll say as a therapist, and that is when a person can't do what we're talking about, then you just go a little deeper. You say, you, you don't, you know, obviously, I know you wouldn't do this, but you don't want the person to feel ashamed of what they can't do. Then you say, well, now this is very interesting. Let's figure out why you can't do it. Mm. You know, what beliefs in you, um, 
and then and, and for therapy, especially that's where we go back to childhood. Where did you first learn this is you can't do this, you know? Yeah. And what was going on? And that's that reframing of childhood where we say, oh, it was because of my sensitivity and what people thought of it and what people told me about it that made me feel that I can't do this. Or, mm -hmm. you know, like, yeah. You know, I've, I've told that story when, when both my son and my nephew, the first day of preschool, they were um, standing on the edge of the room watching because there was so many children and so many toys. And, and the teacher came up and said, oh, what's the matter? Are you shy? Are you afraid? And here these grown-ups immediately planted an idea in the children that was just not there. It wasn't there, but then it's easy around feeling shy, you know, um, if you if you know what fear is, and all children do, then they think, am I afraid? Hmm, maybe I am afraid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. especially as a child. Afraid yeah. Of. yeah, yeah, then you adapt such a such a concept more quickly, uh, mm -hmm. because you don't have so much reference material for it, for the situation, I think. Right. Yeah, yeah and also sometimes is going back to that spot. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sometimes as a coach, I also, uh, I, I can also ask like, where did you get that thought from? Like, and it could be, could be something like one of your parents always said, or, or a family member, like you're not good at uh, uh, whatever it is. And then questioning that thought, like, is that really true? Or is it just applicable to that one situation that you maybe, I mean, people tend to repeat those things often in their mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so, yeah. Yeah, parents begin to develop an image of their child from sometimes from only a few instances. And sometimes parents have other reasons for planting that idea, you know, like if you want a child to not have confidence so that she'll always be by your side, you, you, you might, you might, you know, or might, might be your own mindset as a parent that things are scary. You yeah. see a shy parent walk into a room and their little kid is hanging onto their leg because the kid is learning shyness by observing their, their mother's behavior. There must be something scary here. So it can go back quite deep, but you're right. If you can look at it in a, in a more objective way, uh, sometimes it takes a lot of repetition when it's conditioned in childhood. And that's where too, you know, you have to be patient as a coach and the patient has a HSP that it, it, it may take some time to, to get that reframing. It's first therapist I saw said the thick secret of therapy is repetition, repetition, repetition. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Until you get it uh, that it's not just now I just told you that. So stop doing it. <laughs> yeah. I often always say something like, um, well, first you need to become aware of what's happening and then you maybe you, you develop this new way of how you would deal with it. And then the situation happens again, and then you still do it the old way, <laughs> but then you see it, you see yourself doing it the right. old way. And then afterwards you think like, ah, oh, I wanted to do it in a different way. So then you, it, it, all the time you get one step closer to actually right. changing the moment. And at some point you will change it and you will do it in a new way. And then maybe you will go back again to the old way, but at some point you yeah. will get the new way more yes. into a- uh, you're, you're teaching that learning requires a lot of mistakes along the way yeah. and to expect the mistakes rather than to be horrified by the first mistake and to give yeah. up. Yeah, true. I always see the mistakes as it's not, it, it's not so much a mistake, it's a learning opportunity. I mean, everything that goes wrong in my life is something that will give me uh, a direction of where I don't want to go. So then I only have to look like, where do I want to go? <laughs> so in right. that way, there are no mistakes because every mistake is a uh, teaching Learning. moment. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, yeah. you're a terrific coach, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so one other thing that I wanted to, to ask you about, uh, which is a little bit different again, like last year, your, your book, uh, came out and the first book, the highly sensitive person, how the world, uh, overwhelms you. 
Uh, yeah, I, I hated that title. <laughs> and I've been yeah. stuck with it ever since and all the other titles people like that. Yeah. Um, so, but the new book, it, it's, it, it, the new edition came out and it was revised a little bit with some new uh, research uh, right. that's now in the new book. So what would you say is the difference between when you first researched uh, the trade and what it's now? How, how has it changed? Well, two things come immediately to mind. One is the brain research, which um, it's expensive to do, so there aren't a lot of studies, but uh, it really demonstrates that this is, you see, if you measure something with a paper and pencil test, you ask people, you're getting their conscious self-report, which is better than what you can get when you're watching children and you don't have any idea what's going on in their mind. So it's great to be able to get self-reports because this is a trait that's inside. It's not, it's not obvious in behavior necessarily. It, it is if you know what to look for. Mm -hmm. But um, so, so the brain research, and then the other thing is simply that we now have a lot more people studying it, mm -hmm. which is really good. Um, and, and in a variety of new ways. And uh, it means there's a whole next generation of people too being trained, Michael Pluis, in the UK has is training lots of graduate students and he has a once a month thing with 30, 30 graduate students or postdoctoral students who are um, researching this and so he's advising them and you know that's awesome being, yeah being sure that they're looking at it uh, with the best methods you know yeah yeah well that's awesome that it's also that it's still so much research and that there's still so much plans for and that it's also it's evaluating it's going to be more and more because one of the things i used to joke to and when like when we were doing the mri research it was usually we'd plug in the hsp scale along with another study of something else and i said if you want to be sure you get significant results put this in because you will get differences and psychology biology individual differences have not in the past been very welcome because what they're looking for is what is uh universally true you know they're looking for the the truth yeah but the truth is is it differs for for different people and that they really don't want to think about you know medicine is just beginning to look at individualized medicine realizing that people respond differently very differently according to their physiologies but that's that's relatively new. Mm. So the interest in individual differences has been slow to arise. We still have doctors and teachers and therapists who are trained not about any aspect of temperament, even though, like you said, there's sensation seeking, there's introversion, extroversion, there's how much physical activity you need to feel comfortable. There's how much your life is sort of rhythmic versus all over the place. You yeah. Know? Yeah. There's how well you can transition from one thing to another. Mm -hmm. um, these should all be taken into account in every situation where you're working with an individual. Yeah. Like exactly. coaching, therapy, um, students, I mean, children. Oh, you know, it's just such a shame. But it takes a generation for information to get into the mainstream and that's why the research is so important is because it's it's going to be mainstream yeah. and it comes in many ways like people you coach they talk to people and then somewhere along the line some researcher hears it and may very innocently want to know more about it so we it, it kind of, we influence the research the research influences us and it's inevitable that it will be better understood like I was telling the group the other day, the name for it could change. There could be things we like or don't like about what what is found about it. Although I'm I'm really emphasize that the sensitive person we're studying who doesn't know about their sensitivity, which is what we're usually doing, mm -hmm. is a person who may be having a lot of problems that could be easily solved. Another thing is that we have to look at what kind of childhood someone had. Not that that is like the kiss of death or anything, but uh, uh, then there's the question of whether they've been through any kind of intervention mm. that would help them, uh, like what you're doing, uh, because we know that they soak up 
positive information so well. Yeah. I'll bet you found that you're more a successful coach than a lot of people, partly because you're working with sensitive people. For one thing, just informing them about their sensitivity oh, makes a big change in their totally, behavior. Totally, totally. And then Some they, they soak up positivity. You know, you're a very positive person and their confidence grows partly from just the way you treat them, very naturally treat them. And that's where we have to be sure that the change comes in and the research is so important is that yeah. the message is not studies showing how sensitive people are more vulnerable to burnout or to depression or but they're not looking at these other factors you know or they use a measure of anxiety that has been um, developed using 100 percent of the population but we're looking at a minority who who if they're different they might be different on what is normal anxiety for them. So yeah. they look high in anxiety compared to the rest of the population, but normal, especially questionnaires that say, well, you do you think about things a lot or do you do you yeah. have a hard time doing this or the other thing? And it's just, of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course. Yes, yeah, yeah. sometimes I'm very depressed. <laughs> yeah, I think that's often, I mean, with most, a lot of my clients, they have big, well, they feel like that there's lots of problems in their lives and maybe they have depressions, had had some, some depressions or burnout and stuff like that. And when I explain to them more about the trade and, and what it is like and what's included and what's not, then sometimes it's like after two or three sessions, it's like, wow. I wish yeah. I've known this before because now, because then it empowers them immediately and they become more like, oh, this is normal for me. Then, then I don't have a problem. Thanks very much. And then it's like, bye. <laughs> because yes. sometimes it's yes. just that little of, of uh -huh. coaching and, and they only be, need to become aware that it's just part of them and it's a natural trait and that it's just fine to be who you are. And then it's, then the problem is solved. That's every time it amazes me again. But what 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 an easy way to coach and also then then you've built the person's confidence in you that you have information that can be really helpful to them so they yeah. may stay longer because of that that beginning burst of of enthusiasm about the work yeah yeah totally totally yeah yes so that's uh it's it's great indeed to help people with that and to just give them information and that's what i also with this podcast of course want to share with other people so that's also uh great i think so if you would have one thing that would you what you would think is most important for hsps to hear what message would you give them um, probably I would repeat what we call the five to thrive. <laughs> the importance, there's, there's five things, the importance of really believing your trade is real. And that's where the research can come in. You can Google highly sensitive, or you can Google sensory processing sensitivity in Google scholar and see all these articles that come up. You don't have to read them. You just see that they're there. Um, the second thing is this reframing childhood that, that you're talking about. And people sometimes do it very spontaneously. Oh, that's what's always been going on. You know, um, sometimes it's not so easy because it's so embedded. Mm -hmm. And then we talk about the third one, healing uh, trauma, you know, any, any, because we can and we should. So that that feeling one down or victimized or, or you know, taking criticism to too literally or too strongly, those kinds of things, we can get out of that. Then I think um, changing our lifestyle, we have to we have to realize that we will get overstimulated if we, and that certain situations like certain jobs, you know, there's toxic jobs, just like toxic families. And we often really absorb um, the negative things in a workplace. And sometimes we just have to get out of them, as I'm sure you've told people. And the last one is being around some other sensitive people at least once, mm. you know, so that you can feel the difference in the reality. And you're each talking about, oh, me too, me too, me yeah. too. Another way of knowing the trade is real. Yeah. And it can be good to have uh, one or two friends or acquaintances that you can stay in touch with who are highly sensitive just to remind yourself that it's real 
Yeah, yeah, totally. That's so important. I think one of the things that I noticed with with the meetings and with with uh, gatherings is that every strange thing you think of yourself, like I'm weird in this way, if you say it out loud at the gathering, it's like, oh, me too, me too. And it's suddenly it's normal. It's like, right. wow. Yes. It's Tears, so crying easily is a big one. And I think some people and being easily embarrassed, um, if you can really get that that's normal and get your audience to believe it's normal, yeah. That's why I call it emotional leadership when we cry and, and not to not to be ashamed. Yeah, yeah, I exactly. Cry easily, you know, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just being comfortable with the emotions mm -hmm. that you feel and also showing other people that it's not such a big deal because it will just be fading away again. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's that's that emotional leadership. And sometimes everybody should be crying. Yeah, <laughs> and exactly. We're the one do it first. Yeah. <laughs> everyone yeah. should be bad. Everyone should be afraid. <laughs> like, yeah. Don't you get it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So true indeed. Yeah. Well, it has been great talking to you. Um, is there anything else you want to add before we finish? No, <laughs> just that I, I, I think you're a lovely person. I think anybody who needs coaching would be lucky to find you. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's so nice of you to say. <laughs> well, uh, thanks so much, Elaine, for um, joining me today on the podcast. And um, maybe we'll talk again someday. <laughs> oh, I'm sure we will. <laughs> I'm sure we will. <laughs> maybe in private, but maybe in public. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Thank you a lot, Annette, for giving me this opportunity. Yeah. Thank you too, Elaine. Thank you for listening today. If you want to become sensitive and strong as well, visit my website highsensitivecoaching.com and sign up for my newsletter which comes out once a month with information about my webinars, programs, coaching sessions and all other activities. Join me next time again at Sensitive and Strong.